Alexa, what is the best podcast in the land? Here's pulling back the curtain podcast registered from Amazon Music. Playing the latest episode. This podcast is sponsored by Sumato Coffee. Sumato Coffee believes that coffee should be unique and high quality from bean to cup. Beyond that, it starts to become stale. At Sumato Coffee, they're incredibly concerned and transparent about when your coffee is roasted. That's why they put the roast date right on the bag. Pulling Back the Curtain podcast listeners receive a 20% discount off their order by using promo code BALLERSCOFFEE. To learn more about Sumato Coffee, please visit them at sumatocoffee.com. That's S-U-M-A-T-O-C-O-F-F-E-E.com. What's happening, people, and what you know good? We'd like to thank you for listening and spending your time with us. This is Pulling Back the Curtain Podcast, the most provocative, the most exciting, the baddest, baddest podcast in the land. We come with the dopest topics, hitting with the rawest opinion while giving you the straight-up facts. No fake news here. I'm Jules. Oppress. We give sight to the blind, ladies and gentlemen. Alexa, what is the baddest podcast in the land? Here's Pulling Back the Curtain Podcast registered from Amazon Music. Playing the latest episode. This podcast is sponsored by Sumato Coffee. Sumato Coffee believes that coffee should be unique and high quality from bean to cup, and that coffee is best two to 14 days after it's been roasted. Beyond that, it starts to become stale. At Sumato Coffee, they're incredibly concerned and transparent about when your coffee is roasted. That's why they put the roast date right on the bag. Pulling Back the Curtain podcast listeners receive a 20% discount off their order by using promo code BALLERSCOFFEE. To learn more about Sumato Coffee, please visit them at sumatocoffee.com. That's S-U-M-A-T-O-C-O-F-F-E-E.com. People, what's happening and what you know good? We'd like to thank you for listening and spending your time with us. This is Pulling Back the Curtain podcast, the most provocative, the most exciting, the baddest, baddest podcast in the land. We're coming with the dopest topic, hitting you with the rawest opinion while giving you the straight up facts. No fake news here. I'm Jules. I'm Press. We're giving sight to the blind, ladies and gentlemen. On this episode, we are joined by Cos Martin as we pull back the curtain on his short story of transformation and much, much more. Press was popping, baby. Man, I can't call it. It's your world, Jules. What's the good word, brother? Oh man, it's been it's been it's been a long week, man. Um, a couple uh, CPD officers had uh, took their own lives, and man, we're just it's just hurting, man. I my thoughts and prayers go out to those officers' families and friends, and and man, I know we talked before on this show about man, if you're going through some things, there's people you can talk to, talk to your friends, family, and and they can go out and get you the the proper help and support you need. Man, I, I second that. And like I said, I, I hate to hear that. And, you know, my thoughts to those individuals, their families, and even, you know, you and your fellow officers as you guys cope with that. And, you know, like we say a lot on this show, man, a lot of people are hurting out here. Um, doesn't matter your occupation, man. I mean, there's people out right. here that, man, the pandemic and just being away from their families, financial constraints, there's yeah. a lot of things that are going on out here. And like, like Jules said, I mean, it's okay to not be okay reach out to people because there's people that care. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I appreciate that, Chris. Man, but, and, and I know too, bro, and I know how, I know how much you care about, the, you know, the people that you, you know, you suit up with every day. So I'm sure that you, you're carrying this a little heavy. And even for you, man, shit, if you need somebody to talk to, bro, you you know the number. Oh, man, most definitely. Most definitely. <laughs> I, know I, I know I hit you up. I know you be 
all hey, you be up all, all throughout the night, man. So I know you there, man. And and man, yes, definitely again appreciate everything, man. Yeah, you know, team no sleep over here. <laughs> <laughs> man. <laughs> Other than that, man, hey, hey, I'm still winning, man. Just just to, you know, just out here just working and doing my thing. There you go, bro. There you go, man. But hey, here we are. Another week. Mm-hmm. Bunch of shit going on out here in the world. And we got some mailbag questions. Let's chop it up oh, for a snap. second on those. All right. Yes, so, sir. First one comes over from uh, Kimberly Howard. And she said, what is one piece of advice you would tell your younger self? So, Jules, we'll go ahead and let you start oh, there. Oh, man. Because you're the wise one here. <laughs> I thought about this question. And what, the first thing that popped in my mind was not getting in the car with Jason after graduation. <laughs> <laughs> I second that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, as soon as I read that question, I was like, oh, man. <laughs> if I can just if I can just walk into myself about to get in that car, like, hey, bro, come on now, drive yourself. <laughs> yep. And you know what, audience, if you guys don't know what Jules was referring to, we had, we had an episode we talked about. We were in a near-death uh, experience where one of our uh, high school classmates was driving like a damn fool and almost killed us uh, the night of our gra- high school graduation. <laughs> and so Jules, man, I swear to God, that's a good one. Cause I, we, I, and I don't know why I didn't drive. Cause my mom was like, yeah, you could take the car. And I'm sitting up here like, no, nah, I'll just ride with Jason. The worst damn decision of many bad decisions. Oh, I've made in my life. <laughs> Boy, you know what? This episode here is, is, hit, is talking about second chances. And man, you know what? That, man, I'm glad. Man, I'm glad the Lord was looking out for us, man. <laughs> we did get a second chance, didn't we, brother? Ooh, man, yes, sir. And 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 not and not to be uh, Jules. I mean, that man. I'm we, I'm, I'm kind of like glad that you brought that point up, man, because it definitely hits home with me and the fact of the the episode that we're gonna do today. But also, if you look at our lives, man, I mean, a lot of the way we came up, you know, people could have counted us out, and you know, here we are, man. That was that was a great one, really good advice. So Kimberly for Jules was not getting in that damn car with Jason Carrington. <laughs> And I'm sorry for putting his government name out there, but bro. <laughs> you were foul oh, for that man. one, bro. You were foul. You almost oh, took all of us out. God. You ain't kidding. <laughs> how, about, how about you, Prince? When I saw this question from Kimberly, I said, hmm, I think my piece of advice that I would tell my younger self is uh, don't trust the big button to smile. Mm. No, I'm just kidding. Um, mm. Mm. Oh, okay, I was about to say, Ooh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> hey, yeah, I, I get mean, excited too. But that, but you know, that's true though, because you know, back in them times, <laughs> before I became a safe man. But anyhow, um, there you go. <laughs> I would say uh, the one piece of advice that I would give my younger self is to write things down. One thing that I say okay. is over the years, and I, I don't know how Jules, you know, thinks about this, but I feel like, man, I have some pretty good good ideas at times, and then you forget a lot of that stuff. And I'm like, man, I, if I could only imagine if I'd have wrote down some of those ideas that I thought in my mind, and I'm like, oh, that was a crazy idea. But then you look at all the inventions and the different things that people are doing nowadays mm-hmm. with their, the creations, you never know like what you could have done with that. So that, that's my biggest piece of advice is just write stuff down, man, because no idea is, is a crazy one, <laughs> especially when we see oh, how people dude. are making money out here in this world. Dude, you're hit, man, you hit it right on the head, man, because a lot of your ideas, and you're just, you're probably just, Ah, they ain't gonna do nothing and just just downplay it. But throughout the years, somebody like, man, I thought about that. Yep. And it's having success and and financial blessings and stuff like that. And 
man, you sit up there like, why didn't I write that down or or, or pursue it or go after it? Because uh-huh. even even somebody shut it down the leash, you you went out, hey, this was your baby. You went out there, you produced it. At least you did the legwork and stuff. And man, that's a good one. That's a good, that's a good advice, man. Yeah. And I mean, do you, I mean, everything you said, I, I, I agree wholeheartedly with, man. It's just a lot of times we are our worst enemy when it comes to that sort of thing. So if anybody mm-hmm. is out there that's, you know, you got an idea, man, think about it, write it down, run it through with someone you trust. You know, some people you take your ideas to, they might try to steal. Right. <laughs> exactly. Right. You sitting up there looking like, man, whatever happened to Johnny? God damn it. Johnny, he make it, he on the infomercials or probably doing things and invention and <laughs> on the lifestyle of the rich and famous and stuff off your idea. You're like, that's something and didn't even break you off nothing. <laughs> didn't break you off nothing. That man, that man, that man chucked up the deuces at your ass. That's what he did. <laughs> so yeah, so that old Johnny. I know. Be better, Johnny. Be better. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, Jules. So our next question came from uh, Adrian Collins. And he wanted us to rattle off our top five rappers of all time. Oh, man. AC. Uh, good, good question, AC. Man, that is. Adrian Collins, man, that's a good question. So for me, real quick, of course, Pac. Of course. Is, we he, get, is, we is get he number Pac. one? Oh, he's number one, man. Okay. All right. Cool. He's number one in my book. The next, I, I got DMX, Eminem, and then a little old school with LL and Run DMC. Oh, I like that. That's a strong top five. Man, appreciate it. It was hard because there's a lot of rappers that I like and stuff, but those right there, if you look at my playlist, you pre- those those five there, it's, it's all, all over there. Okay. But you know what? You can't go wrong with yours because you touched on every era of rap. You know what I'm saying? So I, yes, I, sir. I, I like that one. So mine, I went Andre 3000. Love that dude. When he goes on a feature or when he goes on somebody else's track, he kills their shit. Like, it's like every time he does it, this dope-ass uh, rapper, underrated, in my opinion, mm-hmm. loved it. I go Wayne, fourth. That Carter okay. fucking three album, probably still one of my all-time favorites. I mean, before Wayne got mixed up in some of the crazy stuff that he's into, that man right there, mm-hmm. my God. And even think about Wayne, he's had two different acts of his career. He started out as a shorty when, you know, he was with Cash Money, and then he evolved from that. Right, right. The, so yep. he showed you two different paths. So. Love that with Wayne. Uh, then I got to go Eminem. I mean, come on, like you said. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that that dude right there. I mean, he came in as a as a as a white rapper, and he just came into the game and just basically made it made it his bitch, <laughs> like, for lack oh, of better dude. words. Man, he he ran with that thing, <laughs> man. Sheesh. I mean, that Dr. Dre influence on Eminem early in his career. My God, that was an unstoppable <laughs> machine right there. No, oh, it was a monster. My lord. Then I go number two. I got to hit him with Jay-Z. You know, I'm a huge whole okay. fan. I know, uh, okay. you know, there's going to be some people that are listening to that, like my brother. You know, he doesn't like Jay-Z. He thinks Jay-Z copies oh, off of other damn. people and, and so forth. But, man, I just think whole is dope. And then okay. number one, I got to go Pac. Yes, sir. That takes me back to the the, <laughs> the days with, with me and you. And we were driving around, man, bumping that Machiavelli album. Dude. Man, I remember, like, we knew every track, mm-hmm. every mm-hmm. interlude. Like that Pac, if you listen to his albums, each album to me had like a different vibe to it, right? Remember early Pac, when he yep. was like super social conscious, right? And then later on, Pac just basically just became a force that he just wanted, he was somebody that you should want fucking with, right? So yeah, mm-hmm. Pac's always going to be my number one. 
Man, that's that's a good list there. I love that list, especially that that Andre three thousand because that that boy can flow. And a lot of people don't even they don't get messed with him, right? It's crazy. I don't know why he's so underrated. Man, man. So that's that's a great question. I like that, man. Yeah, good question, Adrian. <laughs> yeah. All right. So our last mailback question came up from Owen Sanderson, and this dude he asked this question that had made me it made me have to think. So he said, hey, guys, what are your thoughts on Kyrie Irving's opinions on changing the NBA logo to Oof. Kobe Bryant? Jules, I'm going to defer to you on this one. But when he gave me this question or gave us this question, I said, ooh, I'm going to have to think on this one. <laughs> yeah, I I was like, oh, man. So I had to look it up and it was like, man, the NBA logo, Kobe changed the Kobe Bryant silhouette. Tell you the truth, press. It's a great gesture, but I'm I'm good if it if it happened. Cool. If not, I'm I'm also good with that. Only because if you think about the the NBA logo, right now it's Jerry West silhouette. Well, and the, league, like, the league won't oh, recognize that. Right. We know it is yeah. right. It, the <laughs> league never officially said it was Jerry, but right, yeah. people know you know a statue and stuff like that. Right now, it's cool because we know Kobe and stuff. But I'm just looking at it in the future. Is people really going to remember and look at, okay, this is Kobe Bryant's silhouette, you know, his logo, you know, for the NBA. I feel that um, right now they named the NBA All-Star MVP uh, honor after Kobe. I feel maybe something more like maybe named the All-Star game itself after Kobe Bryant, something to have his name on it and to remember, to resonate and, and rejuvenate for its years to come by in the future and stuff. So, I'm a little torn. If that happens, cool. If not, I'm, I'm okay with that, too. Yeah, this is a tough one. The All-Star game last year, they had a lot of different tributes they did to them. The way that mm-hmm. they did with the, the shot clock and the, and, the, and the score of, like, 24. So there was a lot of different tributes that they did to him over the course of that All-Star weekend. So that was really fitting. This is like this is one still I'm, 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 like, still kind of torn on, like, what I think on this. Now, in one sense, I think Kyrie Irving is right. I think it is time for the NBA to change his logo. The reason why I say that, Jules, is look at who makes up the NBA. It's black mm-hmm. players. It's black players that built the league. No True. disrespect to Jerry West because Jerry West was all-time great, right? But then yes, when sir. they talked to Jerry West about it, he even has said over the years that he would be okay with the um, with the image being removed to someone else. So Correct. the only thing that I think Kyrie is wrong in, this, in his choice is, is the player that he thinks should be the logo. Now, I understand his sentiment. Interesting. Interesting you said that. So let's think about this, Jules. Now, Kyrie is probably looking at the situation and the timing of Kobe's popularity right now because, you know, let's just be honest. Like, it's a year since he passed away. And Kobe is going to be, he's going to live on forever. But when you look at a guy Mm -hmm. like Kyrie Irving, his generation, those guys grew up idolizing Kobe. So I can see why he has that affinity for him. And would like for that reward that uh, the the image to be uh, Kobe. For me, though, I think we should look at other people, and notably Michael Jordan. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. But some people may say, "Well, press." There'll probably be some other people out there that we can look at. And I could say, "Yeah, you could probably say a Bill Russell. You could also say maybe Wilt Chamberlain." But listen, I grew yep. up in the '80s. I ain't watched those two play. <laughs> so <laughs> right, right. But then you can and then say, your point with MJ. Uh-huh. Your point with MJ because MJ, 
And those Bulls at 90s Bulls, uh, well, him coming up throughout the 80s and 90s, but we uh, revolutionized the game. Hell yeah, it did. The NBA we was talked dying. about that on the pause, right? We talked about on the, on the podcast that the uh, the Bulls docu series and the, what Jordan and those Bulls did for the, for the league. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about the NBA's image in the 80s, dude. All those dudes was out there getting coked up and smoking cigarettes in the locker room, just being degenerates. <laughs> <laughs> Sound, sound like a party. Yeah, right? <laughs> but but I think Mike is the person that we probably should look at for that situation just because mm-hmm. he's the best player that I've ever seen. And I even right. love Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I love Magic Johnson. Those guys would be fitting as mm-hmm. well. But when you look at what Jordan's done for the league, I think that's somebody that we should be talking about as far as being the logo. Yes, sir. One thing, though, that may be tough with the whole changing of the image of the uh, the logo is if you do put somebody like Jordan on there, how much money is it going to cost to get the rights to use his image? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, right. Because Mike is a global damn brand. Oof. <laughs> Great question. Oh, man. That's a yeah. I'm glad I'm not, I'm glad I don't have to make that decision. <laughs> exactly right. And so, ooh, we. And so, my thing too with Kobe is I think we have to find another way as a league to honor him and his memory. I don't necessarily know if it would be changing the logo to Kobe. Right. He 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 could be a, a choice for consideration, but I think if we're going to make that type of drastic move, it's got to be Jordan. That's just that's the way I see it. Right. No, I but, feel I feel you. Yeah, I, I just don't know how we would make that work financially to make that happen because with the point that you brought up about Jerry West, they use that image. The NBA doesn't pay him anything for, for it because it's unlicensed image. Okay. It'd be different if they use Jordan because obviously we know his images are <laughs> copyrighted and everything else. So. <laughs> right. So you got to shell out some money. So that's something. Is the NBA willing to do that? Hmm. Good question, man. I don't, I don't know. It remains to be seen, man. I mean, I'm kind of interested to see what, what's going to happen. Yeah, but I'm with you, man. I, I just, I almost kind of feel like if they don't change it, I'm okay with it. If they do, mm-hmm. you got to get some serious consideration to Jordan. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how you make that work, but it's got to be Mike. It's got to be Mike. I'm so, with you. Hey, man, we, hey, great minds think alike. <laughs> yes, sir. But uh, that's a, that was a great question, Owen. Thank you so much. Yes, sir. So, Jules, one thing that we had a lot of uh, listeners hitting us up about was they wanted to know, a, if we had watched uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, and then also, too, they want to know our thoughts on that. Did you get a chance to check that one out? I watched it a couple times. I want to kind of see what you thought, and I definitely got a lot to say about it myself. <laughs> yeah, 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 I finally uh, I finally checked it out, man. I was able to press. You know me about these electronics and stuff like that, man. I was sitting up there. <laughs> Don't laugh at me. <laughs> I'm about to. <laughs> but I call my, I call my cable provider. I said, how how do I get HBO Max? <laughs> and they was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> they said, you download that. I said, oh, all right, thanks. <laughs> but man, so, so yeah, so about time, like, I download off my phone because, oh. you know, I, I, I ain't know how to work none of that stuff. So I download off my phone and watch on my phone. So I checked it out. Man. <laughs> First of all, all right. I love that you called the cable provider with that. How do I get it? <laughs> <laughs> because I'm thinking I got HBO. I'm like, all right, how do I get the app? Do you add Max on there or something? And they was like, no, nah, no, nah, it's a streaming thing. You, you just download that. I said, oh, okay. 
I'm so glad that you didn't call me because I would have laughed for probably about five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> now, people out there, when you listen to this, don't be laughing at me now. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> this man said, I need you to upgrade my HBO to the max. Can we do that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure the person that oh, picked man. up that call, they probably go, they gonna probably play that in one day training things. They're like, listen to this. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> hey, man. Hey, hey, I didn't know. So now I know. But you know what? Hey, prop, props to you for even bringing that up, man, because that, that's humbling in itself that you can even admit that because uh, I know how you, you don't really be messing with all that streaming stuff anyway. So I give you a little bit of a pass. <laughs> oh, man. Appreciate you. Appreciate you, brother. So now, so now, that, you get, now that you got a chance to check it out, man, what did you think? I've seen documentaries already on Fred Happen. So Correct. I, I knew I knew about it. But what this right here, powerful. The performance by Daniel, I don't want to mess his last name up, but oh, yeah. he portrayed Fred Hampton like, my God. Because I went back and I, I, I listened to Fred Hampton, you know, you can pull up Fred, old Fred Hampton tapes and stuff. And what he was able to transform into, into Fred Hampton, like, man, that brother was awesome. Awesome. He, he, I, he, played, he, played, he played that role very well, man. Man, his walk. His speech, the energy that he the brought, the energy, through. man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Press, I was like, man, this is. I love the movie. I love the movie. Of course, what happened and the end and the stuff. Of course, I, 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 it's one of those. I love it, but I hate it because of what happened. It got parts in there where the Black Panther Party movement and what Fred Hampton was doing, as far as building a rainbow coalition with different backgrounds, demographics, and racials, and uh, race and stuff. Beautiful, because he knew the power was, the people in power was in the people, the numbers. And if everybody come together and stuff to over, overtake the government or, or whoever the powers may be who was preaching exploitation and, and, and oppression and stuff. So, man, powerful movie. It was just what happened when the government we talked about this before with the COINTEL Pro with Jager Hoover and, and had moles and spies and manipulated and, and intersect and destroyed and assassinated. That part right there was, was hurtful. So it was a powerful movie, but man, just what happened and the plots and ploys and to destroy what, what was a good thing. We, we always see it on the show, man. And we, we've seen it over and over again in, in, in our history, but when people of color, when when they try to rise up, when they try to build something, the playbook is to discredit and to assassinate or mm-hmm. take out. That's yep. what happened to this brother here. One thing, though, Jules, that I had on this, I liked Judas and the Black Messiah, but I thought it could have been better. From my standpoint, I watched it twice because I thought, okay, maybe the first time I watched this and maybe I was just expecting too much and then maybe I need to like go into it a second time and and maybe go into it a little bit of a lesser expectation. But I'll just tell you and the audience why I kind of walked away from it feeling like it could have been, it could have hit the mark a little bit better. Mm. For our audience, if you guys haven't seen it, spoiler alert, because I'm getting ready to tell you some shit. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the movie is it, it, through the eyes and the views point of Bill O'Neill. So if you guys don't know who Bill O'Neill is, he basically was an informant. He right. basically got busted for stealing cars and shit. And to save his own ass, he partnered up with the FBI and he helped them to infiltrate the Black Panther Party, mm-hmm. right? So the thing that I liked about the movie is the thing that Jules brought up earlier was the performance of Daniel, who portrayed Fred Hampton. However, 
I think that this movie would have been better if it would have been from the viewpoint of Fred Hampton as opposed to the viewpoint of the informant. Mm, gotcha. Because when I watched it from the viewpoint of the informant, Jules, I just was just distracted from the fact of this fucking person is helping the FBI and law enforcement take out one of their own. And that's the part that, that bothered me. Because mm-hmm. as you mentioned, the work that the Panthers were doing in the community, I mean, it was second to none, right? But I also thought that they could have done a better job of painting the picture of the, of the situation that was going on in Chicago at the time. Jules and I talk about this all the time on this podcast about the racial disparities in the city of Chicago. Well, audience, think back to the 60s during this time when Fred Hampton and Black Panther Party were prominent and you had Mayor Daley as the mayor. All the film had Fred mentioned briefly was that Chicago's the most segregated city in America. Remember that part in the film that when Fred Hampton said mm-hmm. that? But that's right. all that's all they touched on. And I thought that that was a missed opportunity because mm-hmm. I think what they should have done is they should have taken more time and paint the picture of some of the racial inequalities that were going on in the city of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Also, I think they could have done a better job of introducing us to a little bit more of Fred because in this story, we only follow Fred's, I think it was the last year of his life, right? Jules, if I'm right, mistaken, yeah. the way they did that. Okay. I think it would have been important for the audience to understand a little bit about Fred's story leading up to that. I mean, I thought that that would have been a, a little bit more important. I think that when I, lo- I watched this movie, I walked away from it, Jules, with no real sense of emotion. When I watched mm. it, the moments that Fred wasn't on the screen, I kind of just like was like, okay, cool. So the moments that he was on the screen, I, my, my attention was 100% on what he was doing, right? There were the right. scenes like that you brought up when he created that Rainbow Coalition. But again, the movie doesn't really do those type of things justice. Think about what he mm-hmm. did with bringing together all the different parts of the city. The work that he was doing with the Young Lords. And if anybody doesn't know, that was a gang, a Latin gang. Right. And they turned the, right. into a human rights organization. The Young Lords, the the Crowns. Yes. Mm-hmm. They well, they took down a lot because they basically what what they do is with with this organization is it fought for self determination within the Latin community, right? Okay. And while I thought Fred's work was amazing, because as you brought up in the past, he's done a lot of work with helping kids have food, right? Breakfast programs. Mm-hmm. Really, all the Black Panthers, when I looked at them, stood for was uplifting their own. Mm-hmm. But you'll see here in this film that any time that this Bill O'Neill guy started to have doubts about what he was doing, you remember that FBI agent, Roy Mitchell, he then started his brainwashing tactics and started to paint the picture about how the Black Panthers and the KKK were synonymous with one another. Right, right. And called them a violent hate organization. Even though Bill could see with his own eyes all the community activism that they were doing, the free medical clinics, like all the work that they were doing, they were protecting their neighborhood. And Bill saw this with his own two eyes. And that goes to show you in this film that one of the things that did resonate with me, Jules, was how the FBI kept reinforcing their original lie that the Black Panther Party was a hate organization. That FBI agent himself even started to express some doubts, right? Remember, he didn't even agree with some of the tactics that they were using to deal with Fred Hampton. And you remember what your boy J. Edgar Hoover did. He sat him down. And this is one of the parts of the movie that actually did get some sort of emotion out of me. He says, 
what will you do when your infant daughter someday brings home a black man? Right, right. And that's when Hoover doubled down on his thing that black equality is the single greatest threat to America. So with all of those things that I just threw out there for the audience, I think when I looked at this movie on the surface, I think that they watered down the Black Panther movement and what it stood for and mostly showed us through the eyes of the person that infiltrated them. But I thought that they could have done a better job of telling that story of all the things that the Black Panther Party itself was doing, teaching mm-hmm. civics and politics to Black youth, right? Because they were trying to groom a new generation of activists. Because you have to think about during this time, audience, this party was around after the assassinations of Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, and Megger right. Evans. Right, yep, exactly. And these are things right here, and Jules can tell you this too, that devastated the civil rights movement. Those are things that I thought that they could have been focused on a little bit more in this movement. Mm. Yeah, all, all that you were saying, oh, wow. What Bill did, Bill should have took his weight. Because in the long run, we ended up having to Bill. Oh, he died later. Oh, he, 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 right, he committed suicide. suicide. Mm-hmm. He yep. committed suicide. Yep. And when you was talking about when he was infiltrating the Black Panther Party and what he was actually seeing was like, no, he was torn. He was fighting against himself. Because at first in the movie, he didn't, you know, he didn't care. He said, what I have to do? But then more when he got into it and started building relationships, he was like, right, he started turning. When, when, when Fred Hampton was giving that speech and he was saying, I am a revolutionary, he was saying it, but he was saying it with conviction. He wasn't saying it just to be saying it. Mm-hmm. And the FBI agent knew it. So he had to bring him, wheel him back in and said, no, 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 you remember, you work for us. Or the impersonating as an FBI agent and car theft, you know, that still hangs over you. I'm like you, when, when, when it comes to that, it was like, wow, dude should have took his weight, first of all, because what he did was tore down a whole, who knew where Fred Hampton would be if that, that never happened? or the Black Panther Party, where that would be at. But because of him, self, of him being selfish and thought about himself and not taking his weight for something he did. Right. He did this. And he tore down a movement where you uplift your, black, your, black, your fellow Black pe- people, your Black community, Black generations. I mean, and let's, <sighs> and let's not forget about the fact of the FBI and the Chicago police executing that rate. Mm-hmm that assassinated those individuals. Mm-hmm. And so Bill, yeah, he played a part in that. But let's just think about what they did because the aftermath of what they did showed you a lot of the way that the FBI and law enforcement worked hand-in-hand to uplift white supremacy or what I would call in this situation white insecurity because mm-hmm. J. Edgar Hoover was insecure. He was an insecure man. Any powerful person, especially black men, he couldn't stand it. It just bothered. Something didn't sit right in his soul if he saw a person of color being strong. He even said it to Fred Hampton. He says he feared him as a black messiah. Mm-hmm. That's the name of the movie. Exactly. Yep. He didn't want that rise of that black messiah. I mean, you like you, you spoke before. Mega Evers was speaking out on oppression and 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 and, and exploitation, and they gunned him down in front of his st- doorstep. Yep. Martin Luther King. Hell. Shit. All the things he accomplished with the civil rights uh, movement, Malcolm X, or what he was, what he was doing. All these people assassinated Fred Hampton, and then there's others that spoke out on 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 black inequality and stuff. I mean, 
And this is what they feel. And they have the game plan, a game book about this COINTELPRO program. Because, you know, in the movie, they was pinning the uh, the crowns and the Black Panthers against each other. So it won't, so they won't unify. And I wanted to touch on one part of the film, because I think you were kind of, you were touching on it, but I think you got two of the groups uh, confused. So the, okay. new, the new Rebs, that was that white group with those Southern roots that Fred was able to win over. And so- Okay, the new rep. okay. The new Rebs. New so Rebs, that was okay. different than that Latin group, but this Latin group was the gang. But anyway, the whole point of that was, that's the thing that Hoover feared. Because what he saw was a black activist movement was joining forces with other activism groups. Mm-hmm. And it didn't matter. He was bringing together the black, white, Hispanic activists in the city of Chicago. That was their biggest fear. Because they didn't want that. They would much rather us fight amongst each other. And that's, it parallels to today's time. And that's why me and Jules do a lot of these type of episodes, because we want people to stop fighting each other, educate yourself, equip yourself with knowledge, and let's work together. Yes, sir. Because mm-hmm. that's, that's what Fred Hampton was trying to accomplish. And that is why he was assassinated for that very thing that he was trying to accomplish. What the parties was doing, they did this in California and there, Oakland, with, when we talked about the Solidaire Brothers with George. Mm-hmm. Same thing. He was uniting different, not only blacks, but white people that was in jail, Hispanic, you know. So that was their game plan to unify because like we said earlier, the power is in the people. It's in the people. You know, just people just got to, listen, we all have the same organs. We all have a heart. We all have lungs. We're the same. Everybody's created the same, equal. We all bleed. We get hurt. We cry. We have emotions. We get happy. One person's not better than anybody else. It says in our constitution, every man is created equal, right? They tell you all that stuff in history lesson. But it's true. So only thing is different is just our colors. One, one, one is a shade light and one is a shade dark. Okay. But we're all the same. Fred knew that. Huey Newton them. Everybody knew that. Okay. But how you treat people is something different. What they was going through was something different. And they spoke out on it. What, they, what their kids needed, better education, food, a safe passage. They was doing safe passage way before what we're doing now. Yeah, that's what the... Real, pa- and it right, was, that was safe what, passage. Yeah. That's <laughs> what the parties was doing. That's what the Black Panther Party was doing. They was uplifting the communities. Mm-hmm. If nobody... We say this all the time. If nobody's going to do it, you might as well do it, do it yourself. I mean, don't even look for anybody else to do it. You can do it yourself. You're equipped. And that's what they did. So this here, like you said, Prez, all this that came out of this movie, I saw it once. I'm going to watch it again because it's a good movie. I felt the same way. When, when Fred wasn't in it, you kind of lose interest a little bit. Right. I mean, you're watching it to, you know, to get the story and stuff like that. But when Fred was there, that's when your eyes light up and like, man, you're waiting on what he had to say and do and his thought and stuff like that. So you're trying to, Get a piece of get some get some get some learning <laughs> from. <them>. Yep, <laughs> yep. But for for everything else, as as you said, they needed to bring it to light what actually the Black Panther Party was doing for their community. Yep, and then also exploiting what they did talk about what the FBI was doing in their in their hands in it, and then ultimately it led to the assassination of Fred. So yeah, I I just think that um, while yeah, it uh, agreed that it was a good movie, I just think that they could have done a little bit more to talk about the legacy of the Black Panther Party, mm-hmm. Fred mm-hmm. Hampton's piece on that, right? Talking about them, they talked about them more as symbols rather than people. And that was the thing that for me, and also too, as I mentioned earlier in the episode, 
I didn't really even feel any real emotion, even at the end when the FBI and the Chicago Police Department assassinated Fred Hampton and Mark Clark. And, and basically, I'm looking at the scene where Fred Hampton's fiance, girlfriend, I, I, I couldn't right. remember how they're shooting them. And Fred Hampton was still alive. And they shot and made sure that they killed. That was rough. That was rough to watch. That was rough to watch, man. That was rough to watch. But Jules, I'll just tell you one thing. Seeing that, I didn't really have an emotion from that because Mm. all the stuff that we that all the stuff that we talk about on this show and all Mm -hmm. the stuff that happens in today's times, all it just made me think of is this was 1969. We're in 2021, and we're still being lynched. Yeah, that was what I felt. Okay. And so for me, I would have just loved to see a little bit more on the party, its success, how it galvanized the community, how the people in the community loved him. Like you and I talked about this in season one, how when we were coming up, our relatives and stuff like that would always talk about how the Panthers made sure that they got to the bus stops. See, yep. they, they, they walked women. Across the street, they carried, if you had, you know, bags, you know, uh, uh, groceries. They made sure that you, you know, didn't walk alone. Like, just all that kind of stuff. That type of stuff wasn't covered. And I thought that that was a missed opportunity. Mm-hmm. So for me, when I looked at it, it was just a, a series of missed opportunities. And I understand that you only get a certain amount of time in these films. But what always concerns me, Jules, and our audience, when Hollywood gets to a story, sometimes they have a way of just watering it down just a little bit. <laughs> okay. And I think that that's what happened here. Yeah, you know, you you, you probably got a little uh little mind control anywhere where yeah, they want you not to focus on some things but focus on what they was doing with uh with Bill uh William O'Neill's character uh no, I'm sorry, with William O'Neill, what he was portraying from in that movie. And it misses like you said, it missed the mark on on other things like people wanted to see and stuff. I, they, you know, they showed just a little bit but you really didn't uh, get the real grassroots on what what they was actually about because they you did see him in a program where he was giving out uh, breakfast. Yeah, I got you. I'm I'm glad that you you spoke that because I really didn't pay attention to that. I was into what what Fred was doing and stuff like that was got me all pumped and was like, man, that's what we need to be at today as a society, as a people in the whole, you know. But I think that that's what they wanted in that movie. Mm-hmm. They wanted those scenes because, I mean, that Daniel was a hell of an actor. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But what I think was is they knew when they, he got a hold of that character that he was going to do his thing. And I just think, man, we should have just probably had the movie from the standpoint of him and his journey and kind of how he saw the vision of the Panthers as opposed to the person that infiltrated. You know? And, and, like, and, mm-hmm. and, like, and like Jules said, you know, that person was responsible for allowing the FBI and CPD to do what they did to those brothers. And that's something that I'll never forget. And we, on this show, are going to do a future episode on the Black Panther Party because I think that it's important for us to tell this story and do the story justice. Mm -hmm. You know, I was just, man, like, man, prayers, great minds thinking like, because I was just about to say, hey, you know what, since they didn't paint the real big picture, we'll, we'll just paint a picture for them. (laughs) <laughs> and we'll just paint a picture for him. I mean, we gave him a little nuggets today on what they was doing as far as uh, safe pasture and breakfast for the kids and, and helping women and children out and looking out for each other and the community as a whole and uplifting. And what, what Fred was doing, he was reaching out to all different demographics of people. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. But man, I mean, with that being said, you know, audience, if you guys haven't seen the movie, definitely check it out. Sorry for some of the spoiler alerts, but we just wanted to get some thoughts on it because we thought, hey, how is this story and movie out there and we haven't touched on it yet? So we wanted to just make sure that we touched on it in our own unique way here on pulling back the curtain and just make sure that you guys kind of saw the way that we that we view things here. Without further ado, as Jules mentioned in the opener, we got a special guest on the show today, Cos Marty. He's going to talk to us about his transformation from being imprisoned to becoming a successful entrepreneur. This guy right here has a story that was phenomenal. And I, Jules, I actually came across him at PodFest uh, last year during the pandemic, and he shared his story on transformation with the panel. Okay. And I'm telling you, bro. I'm not one of these type of cats that like just hit somebody up like just because they said something that was profound to me. But it was like so real that I was like, man, let me connect with this guy, man. See what's good. And dude hit me up like, man, you know, a couple hours later, we chopped it up. And I said, man, maybe, you know, in the future, man, you can come on the show and and share some of this insight with uh, with our audience. So, man, I'm just really humbled that not only did he hit me back, but the fact that he was willing to come on the show and chop it up with us today, man. So without further ado, Kaz. Talk to him, brother. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. Uh, I really appreciate you having me here and, and you know, spreading my my voice, my story to, to your audience. So I really appreciate it. Oh, man. Yes, sir, man. Yes, sir, man. I mean, I'm telling you, just reading through it, you know, there's a lot of people in this world. And, and Jules and I, we talk about it a lot. Jules is in law enforcement. I'm in the corporate space. So we see it from different sides, man. I see cats that you know, they may have committed a crime, you know, when they were younger, wasn't able to get it expunged. When they check that box on the application, you know where that application is going, right? Yep. And mm-hmm. so for, for us, man, we want to give cats like that some insight and let them know, man, your journey's not over, man, just because you get caught up in the system. You know what I mean? Absolutely um, not. Uh, so for you, man, Cos, man, I want to just learn a little bit more about your background and some of your early days, man, because you you came up in NY, in, in right? Yep. I grew up in the Lower East Side of New York City. So my mom immigrated from the Dominican Republic, pregnant with me. And um, we came to to this neighborhood. Back then, it was in the 80s. It was just a very drug-infested neighborhood. I remember seeing heroin lines going down the block. You know, it was just, it was crazy. It was something that you know, look at thinking about it and 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 having that in my mind now and then traveling all around the world and seeing other places is like it was a movie, you know, every day was a movie. Every day was like a, a something happened, you know, and people were gossiping about it or, you know what I mean? And so that's what I grew up, you know, seeing. And I, I thought that was normal, you know, and so I started really expanding myself out of the community and out of like the four quarters that I was uh, living in. Yeah, I mean, I, I got involved with drugs at a very early age. My cousins were on the corner slinging, and and that's something that I, I alluded to. You know, as a kid, my mom uh, didn't have much, and yeah, I would ask her for stuff, and she would tell me like she couldn't afford it, and that that would just frustrate me. You know, mm-hmm. I, I wanted to get what I asked for, or you know, get it in any means necessary. So I saw my cousins had it. You know, they they were you know, had the Jordans and all the stuff and the jewels. And, and that's what I wanted to follow. And so I started hanging out in the corner with them and, and they became my, you know, I guess my advisors, my mentors, you know, people that, that I, uh, that I looked up to as role models, you know, and, 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 and that's who I became, 
you know, I started dealing drugs at 13. I started smoking at 11, um, just hanging out with them. And then 14, I'm selling coke and crack on the corner. And then a bunch of started, you know, growing and, and I expanded it to a crazy business. And and at 19, I was um, running one of the largest drug delivery services in New York City because I came up with an idea and I ran with it. You know, I started selling to all the, all the gentrifiers in the neighborhood back then. And the neighborhood started changing in there, like, early 2000s, right after the, the, the towers dropped, the whole New York changed. Right. Um, that's when I blew up and started making, yeah, by the age of 19, I was making over $2 million a year. One thing that I wanted to just kind of like piggyback on what you, what you said is in the, in the midst of when you were coming up, think about audience, some of the negative things that he was basically being exposed to at a young age, right? And on this show, Kaz, we talk a lot about the absence of mentors for our youth, right? And so mm-hmm. if those mentors aren't there, then who do you think is going to birth the, the young? It's going to be the streets, right? Yep. So it's only natural that that's going to be the transition that happens. So for you, you talked about the fact that, hey, when you were a shorty, you wanted the Jays. Man, we were no different. Mm-hmm. My, my, my mom wasn't about spending $100, $125 no. on those either. So you, we, we have to figure stuff out, you know? So, yeah. <laughs> so I yeah. feel you. And so for your standpoint, though, one thing that I, that really resonated with me was the fact that you saw how the area of New York was being gentrified. You saw that the shift in, in the culture there was going to be different. And, you know, whether it was a criminal enterprise, you still had an entrepreneurial mindset, even at that age, to capitalize. And, and it sounded like you did. <laughs> um, Absolutely. But, but with that being said, obviously, everything has a shelf life, especially when we talk about the street life, right? The money's fast and it comes in. But things, you know, they don't always stay that way, right? So I'm assuming that there was a moment there in that transition where things uh, didn't work out so well for you. So can you kind of talk to the audience a little bit about the kind of the fall of that empire that you had created? Yeah, I mean, it, it was it was crazy at, at 23. Basically, DEA agents caught up uh, caught up to me, and um, they basically, you know, shut my whole down my whole operation down. I had over 20 people working for me, had different shifts, had drivers, dispatchers, all this, all this crazy stuff. And, and everything ended when I was uh, 23 years old. I was sentenced to seven years in prison, five, five parole, total of like a 12 year sentence. And, and so I, I, I went in devastated that I just had a son about a couple years in. So um, my son was two years old or about to be two years old when I went inside. Mm-hmm. And um, and I was devastated at the fact that I couldn't raise my son. Mm-hmm. I couldn't be there for him. And so that that uh, opened my eyes to, you know, start striving to be a better father, you know, try to communicate as much as I can. I mean, I taught, I taught him his ABCs through a payphone in prison, you know, so. Oh, wow. That, that was, a, that hurt, but it also didn't, changed my mindset about getting money. I didn't think I was doing anything wrong. Basically thought that I was just hustling, you know, mm-hmm. the, the mm-hmm. society is wrong. You know, what we're doing is just getting money. And, and you know, I was playing the victim, you know what I mean? And I didn't re- realize, and I guess I did realize a little bit, but I really didn't care about other people and how they were, you know, how I was damaging their, their life, their, their bodies, their community, you know, with the drugs that I was selling them. It was not towards the, the end of my incarceration where I ended up in solitary confinement for an incident that happened with an officer. And 
it led me to the box and that um that basically like woke me up you know it was not my first time in the box but it was a changing moment in my life because i felt like you know i, I needed to get back to society instead of instead of hurting society and I, I felt regret and started dwelling on you know all the things that i've done in the past and i started praying for the first time and you know and i said god how can i get back and and I already was doing this workout stuff, you know, so we started Combody as soon as I came home, but I was doing this Combody workout while I was incarcerated. So doctors told me in prison that my cholesterol levels were through the roof, that I could have probably died of a heart attack within five years and being sentenced to seven years and told you'll probably only have five years to live. I was like, nah, I'm, I need to start exercising. So this is where the whole concept of Combody came about, where I I just started running the yard. I started running, you know, doing exercises in my cell. And I started gathering other inmates to do the workouts with me. And we started building this whole sense of community uh, in the prison yard. But I didn't think I was going to start a business behind it until I ended up in the box towards the end of my incarceration. Uh, with, with about two months left, I got into this problem. But Due to that altercation, I ended up doing another year, uh, uh, an additional year in prison. And that that motivated me to get my head right, you know, and, and say, like, this is the game plan. This is what I want to do. But uh, it's hard coming out. You know, the, the the plans don't go as you plan it to mm -hmm. go because you have so many things hitting you, you know, just like you mentioned, like trying to find a job, you know, trying to readapt anyway, anyhow. You know, technology was a big part. You know, I went in with a flip phone, came out with a touchscreen phone, you know, it was just a whole different world, you know, and you get, um, it's overwhelming. Yeah. Cause the world definitely passes you by. How, how long had you been sentenced at that point or how long had you been away? Uh, four years. Okay. So four years at that point. Wow. Okay. And so a couple of things that you brought up that I really think that I find that the audience will probably take something from the fact that you mentioned about what the doctors mentioned to you about the cholesterol and you being in prison. And I'm just going to make an assumption here. The prison food and the diet there is probably going to be tough for you to <laughs> eat foods yeah. that are going to be healthy for you. So how did you come across the fact of eating better while you were locked up? Yeah, I, I started eliminating all the carbs. Um, I stopped eating bread, rice, pasta, mm -hmm. uh, and just try to eat. I was basically just eating tuna like like I was a cat. You know what I mean? I was just straight eating. <laughs> and, and it was just straight increasing the amount of protein and and working out, you know, and that was basically my diet. You know, just <laughs> and then I stopped drinking the 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 prison Kool-Aid. <laughs> call it the sperm killer. That thing. Uh, hey. or what they put it. Hey, so pretty much, pretty much your diet was, you, you wasn't eating. That's what it was. You dropped all that weight from not eating that food, man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I was just eating fresh. Basically, uh, a lot yeah. of fresh, a lot of... But that's good. Food. Yeah. Yeah, that's good because of your story is that you went in there 230 pounds. Mm-hmm. Dropped 70 pounds in six months. That's yeah. amazing. Did they have a weight room... And some of the prisons that I was in, I was I was switched. Uh, I landed okay. in like four prisons, but there was one that had weights. Uh, and I, mm -hmm. I got to do a little bit of weight, but I always, you know, I don't know. I was just always motivated by, you know, the pull-up bar, push-ups, dips, you know, doing burpees all day. Uh, and that was my thing. Oh, that's dope. So you mentioned when you were in that nine by six uh, prison cell, right? That, that was when you kind of kind of, for lack of better words, you got your, your mind right, got your fucking shit together. Right. So yeah. was that in that moment where 
you said, hey, I need to come out of here doing something different with this prison workouts that we're doing around here? Or what was it specifically when you had that time in the box to to reflect? Yeah, I had a, I call it a spiritual awakening. You know, so basically what happened, I had about two months uh, left to more, towards my release and, and I didn't leave in two months. You know, I, I was about to be released in two months because of an early program that I did. I told my son I'm coming home. You know, my whole family's waiting for me. You know, I'm, I'm, I think I'm sat and ready to go back to society, but, you know, God, God has his plans. And, and I ended up, you know, being called to the medical unit. And when I got to the medical unit, this officer places me on a wall and starts searching me. He starts searching me really aggressively. And, and as soon as he starts getting between my legs, he, uh, I moved my, my body a little bit. And this officer punched me in behind my head. He said, today's not my day. Don't fuck with me. And, um, and when he punched me, I, I dropped to the ground. I got back up and I, I turned around on the officer. And I was not trying to hit, you know, attack him or do anything like that. I just turned around to avoid another hit. And he basically pulled the pin as soon as um, I I turned around on him. And as soon as that alarm goes off in prison, the whole everybody has to hit the ground, you know, because you you just got to embrace for impact. Mm -hmm. So about a half half a dozen officers come to the scene. They they beat the crap out of me. Uh, They shackled me up. And they throw me in the box. And while I was in solitary, all you could do is basically pace back and forth. You know, I'm just walking back and forth in my cell and just thinking like, damn, y'all's coming home in two months. Like, I I need to really fight this case. I didn't do anything wrong, you know. And so uh, this also passed through my um, cell. He opens up the slot where they feed you the food from and he passes me a paper pen and an envelope. And he tells me, here, you can write letters, whatever. And so I, I, I wrote a a huge letter to my family. And then I realized I had no stamp to send out this letter with. So I couldn't communicate to my family, let them know I need a lawyer. I need to get, you know, some type of help you know, to fight this case. Right. And, um, and so I, I, I was devastated. I, been, I, I sat on my, I remember sitting on my uh, cell bed and just laying, leaning on the wall and just banging my head on the wall, just like rocking back and forth. Um, not knowing what to do, just stressed. And then about a couple of days later, sitting in the box, my, my sister finds out I'm in solitary because I, I was always constantly calling home and they didn't hear from me. And so my sister finds out that I'm in solitary. She writes me a letter and tells me, hey, you know, I heard I called the prison up. I, you know, I heard that you got into some altercation. I don't know what happened, but, you know, all I want you to do is pray. And if you can, you know, read Psalm 91 from the Bible. My sister's like super religious type of person. She's in mm-hmm. church right now, you know, Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, she told me, you know, to read Psalm 91. And, and I was like, I don't need God. I, you know, get that thing away from me. Or I need a lawyer. That's what I need. You know what I mean? That, that's what was going on in my head. And I had this Bible that she gave me super early on in my incarceration that, that followed me around through my whole, my whole time I was inside. Uh, because that's the only thing that you could carry, you know, from prison to prison, cell to cell, is that they can't take away your, your religious items. So I had this Bible. And after sitting out of boredom, you know, about a week in the box, I decided to pick it up and uh, turn to the pages of Psalm 91, which states, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my shelter and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And as soon as I read those words, a stamp fell out of my Bible. And it was the stamp that I needed to, 
send this message out to my my family, letting them know I needed help. And I felt chills for the first time. I, I felt like there was something bigger than myself. And it humbled me. You know, I, I was not this, I don't know, I just, uh, I completely just changed my, my way of thinking, you know, and I was not this big person that was going to win everything that came across me. You know, I was not this big drug dealer that I thought I was, you know, and, you know, I just, I, I, I was like, I, I have no control. You know, I got to deal with the situation at hand and, and face the facts. And, and I started rethinking after reading the Bible from front to back, you know, I, I was like, I'm, I'm not only affecting my family, but I'm affecting thousands of people that I sold drugs to. How about their families? You know, I was creating this whole web of destruction, you know, and I said, you know, I need to, I need to find a way to get back, you know? And, mm-hmm. uh, and right away it clicked and, and the workout thing came on my head. I'm like, yo, I'm already working out with these dudes in the yard. I helped over 20 dudes, you know, work out and stuff like that. And, and this is, this is what I want to continue doing. And so I came home and, um, you know, after writing basically my business plan in that cell, I did what I wrote and it was extremely hard. You know, there was a lot, a lot of lack of opportunities, but I, I took advantage of anything that came across me and I didn't care. You know, I didn't care if I was, you know, sleeping on the floor. I knew that I was not going to go back to the world of drugs. I knew that I was not going to divert back to the streets, you know, no matter what. Would you say in that moment, you know, having the the family, right, your sister and having your son that you were obviously missing out on that time with, were those some of those things that really forced you to say, you know what, it is go time. When I get out, I have to have a why and a purpose. Absolutely. And then I just really started thinking about, you know, what was really important in life. You know what I mean? Would I want to sit in this prison cell with millions of dollars or, you know, would I be broke and have my family around me, you know, and that's, that's worth more than anything to tell you the truth. That's, that's how I felt. And, um, I didn't care if I was broke. I was living on my mom's couch, you know, when I came home for two years, mm-hmm. um, as I started combating in the park and, um, and it blew up, you know, but it took a lot of persistence and not giving up. So with that idea being out there about the persistence and, and some of those things when you when you first got out, what was your first moment when you got out that you were kind of forced with some adversity where you were like, man, what the hell am I going to do? Like, because I know a lot of times when, when we get people to reach out to us, they'll just say, hey, man, I'm in a moment here where I just feel like I'm getting ready to give up because I feel like every door is getting closed in my face. What, what type of moment did you have when you got out? I think I already had the moment while I was inside, you know, well, my mentality was, you know, am I going to wake up and be hungry? No, I'm, I'm going to, if I need food, I'm going to go to a soup kitchen that's giving out food. You know, I'm going to mm-hmm. go, uh, I was, I was lining up to get uh, free groceries, you know what I mean? Um, Cause it was programs out here or whatever, you know, am I going to wake up on the floor when I go home? Nah, I'm going to be in a homeless shelter. I'm going to be in my mom's couch. And you know, I, I knew it was going to be hard situations. Um, but the thing I had in my mind was just like, I'm going to keep continuing living, you know, no matter what, you know, God is going to provide me food, is going to provide me shelter, is going to provide me clothes. And that's the mentality that I had. And so I knew that I, I nothing was going to bring me back no matter what, but I was motivated. And I think the first thing that really, uh, uh, blocked me a little bit. You know, I wouldn't even say blocked me because I got through it, you know, but 
was that I went out to the park. You know, I went back to the same neighborhood that I grew up in. And so the dudes are still on my block hustling. There's, you know, there's people still out there, you know, doing their thing. And the park is across the street. And I started doing the workouts out there. And so I went out to the park and, and I started going up to dudes that I knew from back in the day in the street. And, uh, and they were looking at me like I was crazy. You know, I was telling them, yo, I'm going to start this prison style boot camp. They were like, yo, you bugging. This shit ain't going to work. Who wants to work out with an ex-con? They were, I, was, I just knew it was going to work out. I was like, yo, it's going to pop. You're going to see. You're going to see. And then, uh, you know, after a couple of years of, of, you know, making things happen, I've had people, you know, off the corner tell me, like, yo, I need a job, bro. Yo, I just came home, blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm like, I told you that was going to pop. <laughs> I got on board in the beginning. Yep. But, um, yeah, I always, uh, you know, I went up to like everybody, everybody that I knew from the neighborhood, you know, to, you know, get them out there working out with me. Um, and, and most people didn't, you know, and some people were like making fun of me. Uh, but I think that was like a deterrent, you know, because it's embarrassing to do this on your own. You know, you, you look like you're crazy. You know, I went from making millions of dollars, driving Beamers, Benzes, all this crazy bullshit, you know, and now I'm in the park, you know, handing out postcards, you know, trying to get people to work out with me. So I think that was the the mental blockage, you know, for yep. like, as soon as I came mm-hmm. home. But you know what? That's some real shit right there. The one thing that I want to unpack on that is we run into in this culture a lot of times when people have a dream, right? And a lot of people, they don't see your dream the way that you see it, right? So the first thing that they want to do is they want to kind of hate or they want to mock you or make fun of you, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it was important in your situation if you believe so much in what you were doing, you just said, I don't care. I'm going to keep working out in the park. I'm mm-hmm. going to keep passing out these postcards. So what was the moment where it really popped for you? Was it just a situation that you collaborated with the right person that got you in a different type of room? Or what What was that moment that really made Con Body get to that next level? Uh, I don't, I think it was like just trekking every day, just showing up, you know, uh, it started with like training one person that I found, you know, on the park that I had this broken piece of pipe, you know, training in the, in the side, side of the soccer field there. And, and then it just started growing little by little, you know, I, I remember when I had five people out there, I thought I made it, you know, I remember it was a sunny day, clouds is like over my head. I'm like doing flutter kicks in front of them. And, and I'm like looking up, I'm like, yo, I just made a hundred bucks off of this class. You know what I mean? Like I, I did it, you know, in an hour. Mm-hmm. And so I felt like, you know, I, I really achieved something that was like two years in, you know, um, mm-hmm. but it, it was not something that it was not like overnight thing. It was not definitely not like, hey, I was featured here. And and the next day I had 5000 people coming through. It, it gradually just grew. You know, today I've we've trained over 50,000 people. I think that that's one of the things that I'm really glad to hear, because a lot of times when you hear these stories from entrepreneurs, they tell the tale of how hey, I had this idea. And then a month or two later, it blew up, right? I like this story because what it sounds like is you were persistent and you were like really obsessive about making this dream ha- become a reality for yourself. Because that first $100 that you made, that probably felt way better than the first $100 you made when you were selling crack back in the day. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, but I also took that same mentality I had in the street too. Like I, I knew, you know, when I, when I was hustling on the corner, selling nicks and dimes uh, when I was 14, 13 years old, I knew I was happy. You know, I started off with making $20, $50 in a day, you know what I mean? And, and it started 
you know, progressing from there. I just knew if I had the great product and I continued delivering it consistently day after day, it was going to pop. And so I, I just continued creating this great product and continued delivering it and just showed up, you know, when nobody showed up, you know, people would tell me, yo, I'll be there at six. I'm there by myself at six, you know what I mean? And I'm like, fuck it. I'm going to do my own workout. You know, I'm yeah. here. You know, yeah, right. I'll do my own thing, you know, and uh, just continue doing it and continue doing it. And then, you know, eventually it started popping. So what advice would you give to, and I'm gonna, this is a two-part question. The first part of it's going to be, what advice would you give to someone that just comes home, right? Now they have a stain on their record, right? Mm-hmm. what's that one piece of advice? And you probably do this all the time with people that probably reach out to you, but what is that advice? I say, take advantage of every, every single resource out there. You know, um, I remember coming home as a, as a juvenile and, you know, coming back and, you know, I remember, you know, trying to get a job back then. And I was like, nah, no, they didn't hire me. And I'm like, oh, fuck that. I'm going to head back to the streets, you know? It, it doesn't matter if they uh, you get a million no's, but, you know, you just keep trekking and keep taking advantage of whatever, you know, resources you have. I remember coming out this time and um, I just humbled myself. I knew I didn't have anything. You know, all my money gone, was gone. You know, relationships was gone, everything. And I just started building connections with, you know, the nonprofit organizations that were, you know, tackling criminal justice. I knocked on their door, you know, can I get a free Metro card, you know, to go here and there? Can I do, you know, get that food pantry, you know, um, just took advantage of every, I, I was in three nonprofits, you know, as soon as I came home and, and I used and abused every resource that they had, you know, and I just kept doing that. So it really, you humbled yourself and that's probably what you impart on these people that are coming home is just to use those resources and don't look down on anything that's offered. And especially now, like there's so much, you know, 10 years ago, nobody was helping anybody else coming out of the system. You know, now you have every, every, you know, not every, but, you know, and, and I feel like we definitely need more resources, but there's a lot of resources out there for people coming out of the system. It depends where you at, especially in New York, especially in major cities. There's a lot of people you're really tackling and really caring about, you know, helping people readapt back into society. Um, and, you know, obviously, we definitely need more work, you know, in rural America. Yep. You know, it's hard for people to, you know, get a bus ticket or whatever, you know, it's it's hard. But if you're in the city, you know, you shouldn't have an excuse to, you know, sign your name up with whatever program that's out there trying to do something and just use and abuse them. You know, I... I went into these programs, just meeting people there and I met their friends and I hung out with their friends and then started networking mm-hmm. and meeting their friends and, and it, it just continue, you know, meeting after meeting, asking people to be my mentors. You know, I saw somebody that sold their company. I was like, yo, I want to be that dude, you know, give me homework, you know, I'll give you my homework here, check it. This is what I'm doing. So that's what I did. And no. see, that's and that's what's up. What you got from me, Jules? No, cause let me ask you something. These resources. Now, how did you how did you find them? Because that's the biggest thing people are talking about: the lack of resources. But yeah. you're saying there there are some out there. So how did you what where did you go look for these resources? The first resource I found was uh, this program called Fortune Society. Fortune mm. Society is like the biggest nonprofit uh, tackling criminal justice, and and I'm actually I joined their board about two years ago now. That's what's up. Uh, and it's a big board of like 30, 40 people on it. And they're doing mm-hmm. incredible work. But I, I, I came home and I 
I saw them in the parole. So while when I went into parole, parole tells you, hey, you need to find a job. You need to pay your, your monthly stipend. So you got to pay that to be on parole. And if you don't got no job, you know, how are you going to pay that? And some people get violated because they're not even job hunting because they get frustrated and they, they just mm-hmm. get up the streets and, you know. And so when I was in parole, sitting in the waiting room, I remember seeing this lady talk about the program and she was like, hey, you know, for those who just came home, we have this opportunity, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, where? I'm going over there tomorrow. Um, <laughs> and I went over there tomorrow. Yeah, I went, I went, I signed their clipboard, went in there. They gave me a free Metro car for the week. You know, they told me uh, if you want to get like resume training and all this stuff, Good. you know, taking advantage of that. After that, mm-hmm. they told me, uh, you know, do I do I need some clothes to go on a job anywhere? I was like, hell yeah. They connected me with another program called Career Gear. They gave me a thousand dollar theory suit. It was, oh, it was nice. hand, but it was beautiful, new, tailored, you know, use that. That program told me, uh, if you wanna, if you want more clothing, you know, continue coming to our workshops. I went to their workshops, got more suits and ties from them. And I just acted as if, you know, I was wearing a suit or tie every single day. You know, yeah, except for when I was working out, but right, right, right. That was it. So, a question I have for you, and it's mostly kind of looking ahead to the to the next chapter here. So, you obviously went on to become a successful entrepreneur, and so I'm sure now, not in addition to the people that are looking for you for resources on, you know, how do you get out and how you adapt it, but now you probably have people hitting you up saying, hey. What was the biggest hurdle you had as an entrepreneur? But then also, too, how did you overcome that? And so that's something that I'm kind of curious listening to your story, because I'm assuming that you probably had to pitch this idea or I'm at, or that's just kind of my assumption. So w- what kind of happened to you there with the business and how you got it off the ground? So, I, I mean, I had to generate cash by myself because, I, you know, I went to banks, I went to angel investors, I went to VCs. I, I, you know, it took me eight years to raise some money. Oh, um, I, I think wow. I pitched over 300 up, uh, you know, angel investors, VCs, all that stuff. I have a whole, you know, spreadsheet of people that I've, I've spoken to and um, nobody believed in it. Nobody believed in it. Everybody thought I was crazy. You know, even when I was showing that I was making money, you know, even though mm-hmm. uh, I was, you know, comparing myself to other companies like you know, these, these other fitness companies, I don't know, like Barry's or I don't know, Equinox and all that stuff, they lose money every year, you know, so showing that we turned over a profit, you know, and, and all I need is more money to make more money, you know, to blow this thing up. You know, it it was, it was hard. And people were like, yo, you're going to be dealing with ex-convicts, you know, it's a liability, blah, blah, blah. You know, I don't think this is going to work. And I'm like, yo, it's been working. You know, today, uh, actually, tomorrow's going to be my 50th person that I've hired and they haven't gone back into the prison system. So I, I had wow. this. Wow. Congrats, man. Yeah. Uh, Big you. ups to you, bro. Man. And, um, but, and I had the stats to prove them, but I always had to face discrimination. I didn't have no degree. I'm a Dominican kid from the hood. You know, like it, it just all this adversities, you know, there's this. And, and I was being asked to speak in these, you know, master of business schools, you know, I spoke at Wharton, I, I spoke at, you know, all these crazy colleges, Columbia, <laughs> NYU, you know, giving business uh, uh, tools and ideas. 
And these kids are graduating, like graduating out of college. And they're like, yo, your, your advice is amazing. I just raised $2 million. And I'm like, yo, this motherfucker just raised $2 million. I can't even get fucking $2 from an investor. You know what I mean? And it was but, it was frustrating. Because you, but you already know what that was, right? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. All yeah. types of racism, all that shit. Mm. Yeah. Okay. But it is what it is, you know? It makes it it makes it even better, y'all. It makes it even feel better when you make it. Yep. And the thing about it is self-made, but then also too on top of that, how you're keeping cats from going back into the system. What what would you say is like the number one thing when you come across people that work with you? What is it the thing that's keeping them from going back out on the block? I think they come to me already changed. I don't hire anybody that has that mentality is like, yo, if this doesn't work, I'm that's it. You know, I'm going back, you know, I'm doing this. And incidents happen. I'm not going to tell you. I've had, uh, you know, one guy who uh, relapsed, you know, went back to to using drugs and we got him into a drug mm-hmm. program, you know, messed up that drug program, went to another drug program. So, you know, there's incidents that happen and people get frustrated and things happen. And I'm not going to tell you everything is wavy, but, you know, I think what what we've done is created a community where people could communicate and feel comfortable with, you know, talking to me, you know, any issue that anyone had, you know, with parole, housing, we, we have a, a housing unit in the Bronx now where we rent the spots for 600 bucks a room, beautiful, nice three bedroom apartments with everything. And you know, I have a few staff members over there, but it's crazy. And I think that's, that's the number one thing that, that prevented them, you know, from going back, you know, when uh, times got hard, they hit me up or they hit one of their peers up, you know, mm-hmm. like, Yo, you you could pick me up or my parole officer called. Then I was on the train getting to work because I got a seven. I, I can't leave the house to 7 a.m., but I got a train at 6 a.m. And, and I have that great relationship with parole now. So, I'm, you know, I'm calling them, you know, verifying that they're with me, you know, and having that trust factor, you know. So and there's a lot of technicalities. You know, one, one of my guys was crossing uh, county lines and you're not supposed to cross county lines to go to work or do anything. You know, and uh, it's part of your parole, uh, parole uh, stipulations. And um, they found out he was crossing county lines to come to work, you know, and uh, they tried to give him two years in prison behind that, you know. And so we did a whole petition, all that stuff. He didn't go back in, you know, mm-hmm. on that case. But yeah, things like that, you know. And, that, and that's crazy because when you think about that, there's so many factors that can lead into somebody getting violated right at the end of the back up. And you probably have seen that a lot. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I almost got violated for dumb shit like that. But you know what, Kaz, it sounds like to me, a lot of your, your your employees and friends, you guys got a good, a great support and network system. Exactly, yeah. That's what it sounds to me. And people that really care. Yeah. And that's, that's awesome, man. I also want to ask you, man, what is your proudest moment as an entrepreneur? I don't know. I, I got a few, but I guess one, one of them, I could say, like, my, my son... You know, bringing the men's health magazine and, uh, <laughs> school. and and I was in the magazine and he's like, yo, that's my daddy. That's he's nice. Like, oh, uh, man. Uh, <laughs> and he was he was telling me that, you know, when he came home and he was telling me that, you know, I was showing my friends like how strong you are, you know, and all that stuff. You know, this their dad's a week. Yeah. <laughs> so that, you know, having my son, um, and I'm very transparent with him and tell him, Mary, he's already, he's, he's going to be 14 this year already. Time hey. flies, bro. Man. Crazy. 
so the thing with him, so now him as a 14 year old kid, and it seems like as a parent, like you mentioned, you're very transparent. So what are some of the things that you're imparting on your kid? How do those conversations go? Yeah. I mean, I, I have no, you know, uh, I have the, I have control, but I have no control of his decision. Also, you know, at the end of the day, I'm telling, I'll tell him like, Hey, you know, this is what happened to me when I did this. Um, plus he has a whole bunch of, it's just a whole different world for kids, you know, growing mm-hmm. up now they have, they're stuck on their iPads, they're stuck on a computer, you know, in the phones or whatever. But my son is, this kid is, I don't know, there's no kid like him, man. He's hes ironing his uniform before going on a Zoom call, you know, in the morning. You know, like he's a, he, he's just a dude, like does the right thing all the time. And I'm not going to say like, yo, when he goes to high school, you know, somebody's going to tempt him with a bag of weed or something. And I'm like, I'm not going to be there, you know, but I got to be ready for that. Even though he tells me pretty much everything, you know, and and when he tells me anything, like I don't act surprised and I don't bring him down for it. I'm actually I praise him for for you know telling me. Mm-hmm. You know, you know I, I, there was one incident where like his best friend is a girl, she's gay, you know, and uh, and he felt a little bit ashamed that he was, you know. Because back in the day, we didn't hang out with gays. You know, that was something that, yo, yo, get away from me, blah, blah, blah. You know, that was not talked about, you know, and, you know, discriminated about. And, like, he felt that for me, I guess, this manly guy, you know, working out and all this stuff. And he told me this, and I'm like, amazing. She's, you know, great, great girl. You have her over, you know, play video games, blah, blah, blah. And it is what it is, you know, and, and just right. having an open, mm-hmm. you know, conversation where he doesn't feel uncomfortable to tell me anything. Right. And and that's and, and that's why, you know, Jules and I talk about on this show why there is some promise with this next generation. Cause when I hear stories like that about your your kid and how he's he seems like he's professional in the way that he goes about doing the Zoom calls. Yeah. And also too with that friendship that he has with that person. Because you're right, when we were younger, we had a lot of stigmas because we didn't get you know, life in the way that there's a whole world out there. And so I'm hoping with this new generation that more and more of them kind of have the, the thought process that your son has, because that's really awesome to hear. Yeah. What is change to you? So when you think back to a lot of the different things that, that you know, transpired in your own life and you having this second chance that you're taking advantage of, but what does change like mean for you in essence? Damn, change. Uh, uh, change is not going back to... So the same things you were doing, I guess, you know, um, that that's just that's my change. Uh, not going back to, you know, the old you or the or old ways or whatever, you know, um, that's real change. You know, I, I feel like I changed because I'm not selling drugs anymore. I'm not hanging out in the corner anymore. I'm not contacting my friends. You know, I was going out to the club and all, and I'm not saying that's none of that's wrong. Um, you know, if I travel, I'll go out somewhere or whatever. But um, that's not, I'm not about that life no more, you know, and I don't have anything to prove mm-hmm. to anybody. Um, you know, I felt like back in the day, I was just like, I had to wear the jewels. I had to drive the cars. I had to have the girls and all this crazy stuff. And none of that is important to me anymore. And I like that just because a lot of things that I even have to talk to with kids that, you know, that I come across that I mentor and it's the music that they listen to. Right. So a lot of times they think that their value lies in material things and doing all this other kind of stuff. And 
they'll, it'll, they'll get to a point in life and you, you know, it's, I'm not going to be the one to tell you what should be important to you as a young adult, but they'll get to that point in life when they'll realize the things that actually matter and, and what um, doesn't matter and surrounding themselves with people that can help them elevate. And I think that that's something that happens with a lot of us once we mature <laughs> and go through mm-hmm. like life's bullshit. <laughs> so, yeah. And these kids um, are growing faster too. You know, they, they, they being adapted or being shown so many crazy, we can't prevent them from what they've seen. Oh yeah. Back in the day we had to have like, you know, a peephole on our fingers cause uh, you know, <laughs> watch this or couldn't do that. You know what right. I mean? Now it's just like, you know, I can't stop you. You know, it's out there. Yeah, it's out there. And the thing about it is, it's the internet, man, because when we were coming up, we didn't have all that. And so they have access to so much stuff, bro. So much stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and also, too, it's the influence of the internet, right? So a lot of kids now, they they want to be, you know, viral superstars, right? And mm-hmm. there's a lot that comes with that, too, negative yep. or positive. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because I always tell them, it's like, hey, I know you want to get your jokes off, like with the kid that tried to do against Cam Newton and whatever. He thought that was cute. But hey, why don't you look at doing an idea and go viral on a business concept, right? To do yeah. something that's going to elevate and build you up yeah. and not be a clown. Yep. Yeah, yeah, something positive. Something positive. But you know yeah. how that is, per is, man. <laughs> yeah, easier said than done, right? <laughs> yeah. Your brain is not developed yet, you know? So, right. All you want is, uh, you know, Increase those endorphins when when uh, when your friends beg you off for stupid shit. You do. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah they be gassing you now. <laughs> <laughs> and then you get in trouble. You look like you're looking all messed up. Like damn. And sometimes you had to go through some things to kind of get that transformation of mind and stuff. So, yeah. yeah. But for for you, cause what you doing out there, being that positive role model, man. You doing it, bro. Man, you doing it. And, you know, before we get out of here, it's one thing that I wanted to end this this conversation on is a, is a point that he made on one of his TED Talks that he did. Um, he said, what if you were known for the worst thing that you've ever done in life? And I thought that was really astounding because we live in a world where people refuse to look at their own closet and the skeletons that they have in their closet. And they're very quick to point the finger at somebody that made a misstep, right? I think that that was huge because that gives people some food for thought right there, guys. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Because none of us are perfect and and all of us have made mistakes. But I think you even followed it up by making another comment of saying, hey, you know what? Why don't you change your way of thinking and maybe look at it for the best things that people have ever done in their life? Yep. Yep. Yeah. It's just that we, we all have like this internal judgment, you know, straight off the bat when we see somebody, when we hear somebody. You know, when I when I got up on stage and told, you know, those individuals that I had, there was hundreds of old people there, you know, mostly white, you know, and it was just like, you could tell, they were looking at me weird. They were looking at me with this already judgment. So, you know, I, I wanted them to really in, internalize, you know, what they were thinking, you know, and, mm-hmm. and everybody has made mistakes. Everybody has done something, mm-hmm. stupid, you exactly. know, what if, what if you got caught? You know, I feel like everybody's committed some type of dumb crime, you know, or any type of legal stuff. But what if you have caught, you got caught, you know, you, you'll be judged for this, you know, and I feel like we need to really change that concept, that, that mentality and, and concept and rethink about, you know, highlighting the good and not the bad, you know. Because it's very easy to focus on the negative, right? Exactly. <laughs> 
Hey, dude, hey, you know what, Kaz? Man, I'm, I'm going to point out something real quick. Man, what you did with that negative and switch it to a positive with you being incarcerated and how you came up with the business plan with, with Con Body, everything you took from the prison system, you flipped it and made it positive and made it a profit and, and, and inspiring other people and hiring other people who was in the, in the, in the system and give them houses and room and board and make a network. Brother, yeah. you did this, man. And you yeah. didn't let that, you did not let that mindset just say, you know what? I'm make this a, a revolving door. Come out, come back in, come out, come back there. Like a lot of people have, have done. You That's went right. in there with a transformation of your mind, just like with the Bible, with your sister and your family. Man, kudos to them because you need prayer. You need that family structure. And what you did with, with con body, okay, a convict, but your body and stuff. Yeah. And you put this, you had a slogan, do your time. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So you and you and you and you 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 transform your body, you lose that weight with doing the stuff that you was doing in your house and in the yard, and you get got other people doing it, they looking good, they feeling good, everybody getting money, everybody happy and stuff, man. And all all off of that one thought that you had. Yeah, it's crazy. And that's an amazing story. Amazing. That's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah, and even and even seeing the people in this class when they yeah. put up their when they put up their con body pick, you know. <laughs> Dude. I, lo- I love the marketing on that too, boy. That's yeah. that's tight. <laughs> yeah, you fl- like you said, it. he flipped it. Yeah. yeah, I tell these people you look too happy to be locked up, man. When they take <laughs> one <pop. laughs> only, only person I be seeing that looked uh, that ever looked that happy getting locked up was your Trey Songs. That's the only person I ever seen <laughs> smiling in the picture. Uh, and, 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 and Justin Bieber when he he knew he had bail money. <laughs> yep, yep. Oh, okay. He like I'm up out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Because, brother, man, we appreciate you so much, man, for everything that you've done in your story, what you're doing for others to pay it forward. Before you get out, tell us a little bit about your book that you put out and a little bit more about Combodies, just for our audience can learn a little bit more and how they could potentially take involved with that or how they can help you, you know, with with the business. Yeah, thank you. So I have a book uh, called Combody. It's available on on Amazon. Um, So basically, it's my whole workout, a little bit about my story in solitary confinement that I mentioned in the podcast. But it has my whole 90-day workout routine that I wrote out while I was in the box. And yeah, I mean, Combody is a, a, we call it a prison-style fitness program where we hire people coming out of the prison system to teach fitness classes. Uh, We do this virtually. We have an on-demand platform. We have an app. Um, and if you have it in New York, we have a studio that you could ch- come and check it out in person. Oh, that's what's up, man. We got listeners all over, man. And New York is probably one of our bigger markets, man. So, yeah, our New York listeners definitely uh, pull up. Are you Where you in uh, Manhattan area with your studio? Yep. I'm in Manhattan. Okay. That's what's up. That's what's up, man. Well, hey, thanks so much, brother, for coming yeah, on here. For real. Man, Thank you. Mm-hmm. That's love, Appreciate man. you, guys. All right, now. Be all easy. Right. Yes, Thank sir. You. Jules. Man, that's a dope ass episode, man. Man, very inspired, very inspirational, brother, right there. Man, I love that story. I love stories like that, man. Hey, we told you guys on season two, man, that we were gonna pull back the curtain, and that's what we're doing, man. So this story on transformation. Any of our listeners right now, if you've been a part of a situation where, hey, you may not be so proud of something that you did, hey, journey's not over yet, you know. So just always listen to stories like this with people that have run into. Whatever it could be, it could be with the law. You could have made a personal bad decision in, mm-hmm. in your life. It's not over, and mm-hmm. just keep that in mind. Without further ado, Jules, man, we gonna get up out of here, man. But another dope ass yes, episode, yes, pulling back yes, the sir. curtain podcast, man, man. All right, prayers, man. Watch your six people out there. Watch your sixes out there, Jules. 
Going to hit him with that curtain call, bruh. All right. This curtain call goes out to Safer Foundation. Their version is equal employment opportunities for people with criminal records, which improve the socioeconomic well-being of individuals, their family, and community. They support over 5,000 men, women, and youth in attending gainful employment each year. For nearly 50 years, they've been a leader in the fight to break down barriers and provide people with arrest and conviction records the opportunity for a second chance. Safer Foundation believe everyone deserves a second chance, and they truly helping people drive and build a future they never thought possible. Prez and I and Pulling Back the Curtain Podcast family would like to thank you guys for all your work. We appreciate it and keep it up. Thanks for that curtain call. As always, you can find this podcast on Amazon Music, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and Deezer. We appreciate your continued support of this show. Without you, we wouldn't be. We're the Pulling Back the Curtain podcast. Thanks for listening. Peace.